0: I'm Michelle Jr. and you're listening to episode one of Coffee with Michelle. this conversation and I thought the best way to start is to simply tell you my story so I'm going to share with you a recording of a women's retreat that I spoke at back in February of 2016 in Pismo Beach California entitled God of the Unexpected so here we go how many of you like surprises thank you okay Well, if you're like me, it depends on what kind of surprise it is. Is it like a birthday party surprise? Or is it like, surprise, your purse was stolen and your account's been closed out? So, I mean, I guess it just depends, right? When we hear or use the word surprise, it typically conjures up happy thoughts. But the word surprise simply means something unexpected, whether good or bad. God... It's full of surprises. The Bible says that his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He doesn't think like we do. So we find ourselves getting frustrated when he doesn't answer our prayers or he doesn't do things like we think that he should, right? But he is the God of the unexpected. When your life takes a turn, onto a dark road that you're unfamiliar with, you have to trust that he knows the way. When something happens and you feel like you've been blindsided, he's still in control. Although you may have been caught off guard, God never is. God doesn't see like we do. We see our lives in part. We can only see and experience life as it happens. But God sees our life in its totality from its beginning to end. He sees our past. He sees the present. He sees you sitting here right now. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're going through. He knows our present lives. And he sees our future all at the same time. See, you and I can't fathom that because our brains don't think like that. But that's how God sees us. He sees us all done. And we're still in process. He sees how something happened to you when you were eight or 10, and how that very thing might be the very thing that you need the strength to glean from when you're 40. You might go through something when you're 40 and 50, and God uses something you went through as a child to strengthen you and to help you. I grew up in Oakland in Northern California. Do you know where Oakland's at? Most of you probably do, probably not for good reasons. (laughs) It's usually on the news. My husband was just telling me, and I've known this, but it's like the number one or what number I think it's number two it's on lower in the totem pole like the number two of the highest murder rate of, in the country or I mean it's crazy and I lived in the bad part of town in Oakland in the 70s my mom and dad met in high school at Oakland Tech where a lot of movie stars went to school they both dropped out of high school they got married had two kids me and my brother Jr. My dad worked all day, and he stayed out all night drinking with his friends while my mom stayed at home with us kids. My earliest memories are of my parents fighting and yelling while my brother and I hid under our beds. They divorced by the time I was four, and my mom quickly remarried and had two more children, Melissa and Glenn. Sometimes I call her Missy, so... Later on, if I don't call her Melissa, it's Missy and Glenn. My stepdad loved his children. And he made that known to my brother and I when he'd come home from work and he'd bring gifts for his kids and not for us. My brother would cry and I would pretend like I didn't notice. As a little girl, I began to master the art of hiding my feelings and storing my emotions within how many of you know what I'm talking about? And for the next several years, Junior and I, my brother and I were shipped back and forth for the holidays and summer vacations on the Greyhound bus. And I think about that today. We were like four, five, six, and seven. You know, we just had a name tag. My mom would just put us on the bus and we'd sit up front And from Dinuba to Oakland. And from Oakland to Dinuba, I mean, that's a several-hour drive. I can't imagine doing that with my kids today, ever. I, they would not get on a bus for one minute by themselves, like to the next bus stop by them, never. But my mom, I, you know, we do things differently. <laughs> but my parents had no issues doing that. So we would be shipped back and forth from my mom and my stepdad's house to, that was in Dinuba, which is near Fresno, it's kind of out in the country to my dad's apartment in Oakland. So I lived in two very different worlds when I was a kid. I would say the best of both worlds, but I'm not sure if any of those worlds were very good. (laughs) I mean, because they were both bad. I mean, I wish I could say I lived in Pismo Beach and, you know, Santa Barbara, so I don't know, but yeah. But you guys probably think it was Santa Barbara, come on. So, and I don't know what you guys, I wish I could live by the beach. My husband retires in five years. I would love to live near the beach, but he's the opposite. He wants to go further in towards the desert. Uh, why would, you know, thank you. See, I just need to take a picture, a videotape of you guys and just take it home with okay, me. So so my mom and dad would ship my brother and I back and forth from Oakland and Dinuba. The summer before my fifth birthday, just before I started kindergarten, my paternal grandfather began molesting me. When I was 8, during one of those after one of those bus trips to my grandfather's during my uh, Easter vacation, my grandfather raped me. And I had to get back on the bus and go home as if nothing happened. Shortly after that, my stepdad began molesting me. And then one of my uncles. So my whole childhood was wrapped up in this this awful mess. Each of them used the same tactics to keep me silent. They would give me gifts and threaten me. And because I was super close to my brother, Junior, they would threaten to hurt him. So that kept me quiet to keep him safe. When I turned 10, my mom met another, uh, another man. His name was Anthony. She divorced my stepdad, and I hated my stepdad, so I was happy to see him go. And Anthony became like a father to me, the father I never had. He would pick me up from school. He'd help me do my homework. He would take me out for ice cream. And this was in the 80s, like when Pac-Man came out. So Pac-Man, I mean, he would take me to go play Pac-Man. We'd get a soda. We'd sit there for hours with quarters. And it was just, he was the dad I always wanted. He taught me how to fish. He taught me a lot of things when I was growing up. And for the first time in my life, I felt like somebody cared about me, that somebody knew that I existed because I felt like nobody knew who I was. Like, I'm here, but nobody notices me. So this guy comes into our life. He moves in with us. And pretty soon, I have like this father figure a mom, my brother, um, you know, I have his dad now, and I have a dog, and things are good. But within a couple of weeks, he took me to his trailer that was parked out in Diaba, and he raped me. Like the other men in my life, he threatened to hurt my brother to keep me silent. He took me back home to my mother's house, and for the next two years, I lived in a nightmare. He controlled every moment of our lives. He made my mom quit her job. She got on welfare. He would make her run out in the field while he would shoot guns at her and just horrendous things. And he would beat her until she would pass out. And he'd drag her into the house and throw her in the bathtub. And there she would be for days, unconscious. And myself, being the oldest of four, I would have to fend for my brothers and sisters, my sister and my brother's and while my mom was in the bathtub, and not let them know about it. So the curtain would be drawn, and we'd be using the bathroom, and we'd be trying to go along with life, while I, would, I didn't know if my mom was alive. I learned how to cook, take care of my siblings under extreme stressful situations. And um, when my mom wasn't able to be around or my mom wasn't involved, I, my mom would oftentimes leave for, for days. And um, I just had to take control of the house. And I'm 8, 9, 10 years old. I went to school sporadic, sporadically. Sporadically, that's not a word. Sporadically. I wasn't allowed to have any friends. I moved. We moved a lot. And when we couldn't pay our rent, we move in the middle of the night, we pack our stuff, and we would just move on to the next town. We did that quite a bit. I lived in a constant state of fear and anxiety, not knowing where we would live or what we would eat the next day, how I would get food from my brothers and my sister. I just wanted to go to school and I just wanted to make friends and play like the other kids. But when I would go to school, and when I would make friends, we would move and I could never say goodbye. So I learned how to keep to myself and not make friends too quickly because it hurt too much when we had to move away. After a couple of years, Anthony suddenly left our house and went back home to his father's house. A few weeks went by, and on May 2nd, 1985, which was my brother Junior's ninth birthday, Anthony kidnapped me from my family and took me to his house. We drove up to the front of the house. He took me right through the front door to the back of the house where his room was located. I had to get undressed, and suddenly he lifted up the headboard of his bed, which was a hollow box, if that makes any sense, and he told me to get inside. I crawled inside the box, and he lowered the box down and bolted it to the floor. He hit the side of the box very hard to let me know to be quiet, and that he'd be back in a few days, and then he left. I heard his footsteps walking away. I waited for several minutes until I could hear his car pull away. And in the dark, I began to panic. And I remember telling myself, "I nobody knows I'm here. I don't know how I'm gonna get out of here. I tried to press on every side of the box, I couldn't get out. I began to feel around the box with my hands and I found a flashlight. That he had placed at one end of the box, I turned it on, and I seen that he also left a piece of chicken, an orange, and a gallon of water in another empty container. There was also a small crawl space from that box, the headboard, into uh, underneath the bed. So there was a there was the box, the headboard, and there was a. Crawl space where I could crawl underneath the bed and with the flashlight I could see that there was clothing underneath the bed and a blanket and the pillow. So I grabbed the t-shirt and I put the t-shirt on and um, went back into the headboard and just sat there. And hours went by and I just sat there and I listened and I waited. And soon it was morning. I could tell it was morning because he left the blinds open in the room and I could see light coming in from the edges of the box through on the, the, the cracks of the floor. So I sat there in a fetal position, just listening and waiting, and I can feel my heart racing and my body trembling, but I remember just practice practicing being still and breathing slowly so that I wouldn't panic because I felt like I was gonna go there. I got hot, it was extremely hot, it was May. So I remember just pressing my face against the linoleum floor to keep cool. I drank almost all of the water the first day and I ate the orange and the piece of chicken and I used that empty container to urinate in and um, try to keep myself clean as much as possible. Throughout the day, I was tormented with thoughts of my brothers and my sister not knowing where I was. I was worried that no one was taking care of them. Night came, and then another day went by. The smell of the chicken bones and the orange peels and urine <laughs> began to make me nauseous. Thank you. I brought, almost brought my Bible here with Kleenex in the back, and then I forgot thank you, sweetie. I'll just take. It. Okay, thank you. I'll probably need this whole thing. We'll just pass it around. See, that is good. So a day went by. and the smells in the box just was horrendous. and um, the bed was made of freshly cut pine. So the smell of pine and orange peels and chicken bones and all of that mixed together, I was start to get really sick. The third day, I was completely exhausted and hungry and thirsty and afraid, not knowing if Anthony would return or if I'd ever be found. No one knew where I was, and I tried to escape several times, but I couldn't. I was 12, locked in a box. On that third day, I remember praying to God for the first time in my life. I wasn't raised in a church, so I didn't know how to pray or what to say. I had just started talking, and who knew that's how you pray, right? I remember saying, God, if you're real, please help me. I'm only 12, I don't know what to do. And if no one finds me, I'm gonna die. That was my first prayer. I remember holding my breath and waiting for a response. Because I thought, when you pray, doesn't he answer? like you know, I thought maybe God would say something or do something like the box that would open. I don't, you know, that, but nothing happened. I didn't hear anything. I didn't see anything different, and I didn't know if God was real. Like, did he hear me? Could he see me? And then I remembered a song, the only church song that I knew. I learned this song one of the few times my mom would drop us off at church when she needed a babysitter (laughs) for Sunday morning, Sunday school. And it was called Jesus Loves Me." And I just started singing. I was whispering, but singing, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so. And I sang the song through several times. I thought about the words and they just didn't make any sense to me. I remember my Sunday school, my Sunday school's teacher. I call her my Sunday school teacher, we met like twice. But she was my Sunday school teacher. I remember my Sunday school teacher saying, no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, you can always pray to God and he will hear you. I wondered if he could hear me. I wondered if he could see me. If he knew what was happening to me if he could see me sitting in this box with no food or water. After three days, Anthony finally returned. He unlocked the box and he let me out. He gave me a bowl of warm water and a washcloth and a clean t-shirt and some food to eat that I couldn't keep down. And he allowed me to bathe. I stayed out of the box for a couple of hours while he sat and watched TV. I don't know what he was doing. A Couple hours later, he raped me again and made me get back into the box. I lived like that for about a month and a half, in and out of this box. I thought about ways that I could kill him, but I was too afraid. I had seen things on TV, you know, you watch things when you're a kid, you're not supposed to. (laughs) And, you know, that I could do and I just could never get up the courage to do anything. I was too afraid. So I continued to do what he asked me to do. He'd come home, he would abuse me and he would make me get back into the box soon. I would gladly get back into the box That was a place of safety for me. As the days went by, I got more and more sick. I stopped eating. I didn't have the energy to move much. And one night, I got bold, and I decided to ask him if I could call my mom and if I could go home. And to my surprise, he said yes. And then, but he made me promise that I would not tell anybody where I was at and what had happened. He made up this elaborate story of how he found me on the street and I was with some random homeless guy. And um, he made me memorize this whole story. We went over this scenario for a couple of hours and then he allowed me to call my mom. My mom came right over. I laid on the bed and listened while Anthony recounted this story to her, and I thought for sure that my mom would take me home with her, but she didn't. Instead, she let me stay there for the night to rest, and that she'd be back in the morning. I did not know what to do or think. I didn't know whether to scream and tell her what was going on, but I was afraid. I didn't want him to hurt me or her, So I just listened, and she said, I'll be back for you in the morning. I laid there confused and frightened. As she left, she got in her car and drove off without me. Anthony came back into the room, and he was clearly agitated and angry. He walked over to his dresser. He took out a gun and held it to his head, and I thought he was going to kill himself, but he didn't. I thought he was going to kill me, but he didn't. He put the gun back on the dresser, and we both just sat there in silence. Within an hour, there was a loud knock at the front door. He motioned for me to get into the closet, and I went, and he went and answered the door. I could hear voices and radio and commotions outside. My mom had called the police. She left me there for a reason though I did not understand at the moment. She knew that if she had taken me, she would never never be able to prove that he took me to his house. So the next thing I knew, I was laying in the hospital, being examined, and there at the age of 12, I found out that I was four months pregnant. At that moment, I had no idea how to respond. I was tired and delirious. I wasn't sure if this was real or if I was dreaming. I felt worthless and hopeless. They sent me home with my mom where I was reunited with my brothers and my sister. A week later, the police were at our house looking for Anthony. He was bailed out of jail. He did not show up for his court hearing, so they were wondering if he was at our house. After the police left, my mom informed me that Anthony was living in our attic. So my mom, from the back porch telling me this story, that he had been living in our attic for a week, escorted me through the house to her room. I sat on the bed and I watched as the ceiling board of her closet moved and he came down from the closet with a Bible in his hand. I didn't write this part down, but when he had a Bible in his hand, my thought was, I never ever want to read that. If he has anything to do with that, I don't want anything to do with that because that's, he's evil. And if he's that evil reading that, I don't want anything to do with that. That day, Anthony took my mom and all of us kids by gunpoint, made us get into the car, and for the next two days, we traveled up and down California, all over the coast. We probably went through Pismo Beach, I don't know, maybe. We were all over the place, and we landed in Las Vegas, where he took me again. We left my mom and the kids at Circus Circus, And he kidnapped me again and took me to Mexicali, where he was looking for a doctor to give me an abortion. We walked the streets of Mexicali for several hours in the early morning hours, (laughs) and not finding a place to um, get an abortion, we finally attempted to cross back over into California, but there at the border, he was arrested. He was taken to jail, and I was placed in an orphanage there in Mexicali where I stayed for several weeks with a bunch of kids that were just left on the streets, and I was pregnant, 12 years old, pregnant, and I didn't write this in my notes. There's so many things I didn't write in my notes, but I, <laughs> I, I was standing there in this orphanage in a room that's, you know, tiny with 30 kids, and they're all calling me mama, and I'm 12, but they see me pregnant and they think that I'm their mom. So I lived there for a few weeks. (laughs) Anthony goes to court, we go to court, actually I'm flown back to California a few weeks after that. We go to court and he receives eight years in prison and he served four, he got out on good time. Right after testifying in court, my brother Junior and I were placed with my father in the Bay Area in Oakland. And Melissa and Glenn went with their father to Dinuba and I lost contact with my sister my brother Glenn and my mom for several years I didn't talk to them I didn't talk to my mom for several years after even I had contact with my brother and sister my mom and I had the worst relationship ever I had so much anger towards her for allowing all of that stuff to happen and her not doing a single thing about it it hurt me my father when I went to go live with them, had no idea what to do with me. By this time, I was seven months pregnant. Embarrassed and ashamed, he put me in a maternity home in San Francisco for teen moms. It was easier for my dad and my family to cope if they didn't have to see me pregnant every day. I felt rejected and worthless once again, as if I did something wrong. But I look back and I can't imagine the pain that my dad and my grandmother must have endured. Especially my grandma. I was her first grandchild that she was so proud of. During my orientation to the maternity home, I'll never forget the conversation I had with the woman processing my paperwork. She was a nun. The home was run by nuns. It was a Catholic maternity home. I sat there alone with the nun, who strongly (laughs) encouraged me how important it was that I give up this baby for adoption to a loving family. And I couldn't agree more. (laughs) I had no desire to keep this baby, nor did I want any connection or remembrance of Anthony in any way. I wanted to forget about him. I wanted to forget about what he had done. And that part of my life, I just wanted to, to just go away. I couldn't imagine keeping a baby from that. She asked, if I did keep the baby, what could I offer him? I said, nothing. I don't have anything to offer him or her. She said, do you have a job? How will you feed the baby? How will you clothe him? How will you buy diapers for the baby? I said, I don't I don't know. I. I I'm not going to, because I I don't I don't have money I don't have a job and then she said to me again pressing she said you're going to give this baby up for adoption you're going to give the baby to a loving family I said I, I said yes I will so she asked me are you going to keep the baby I said no so she said okay here sign these papers so I did she said you're going to make somebody very happy I said okay and she handed me a stack of papers and at the corners were Pictures of people stapled to the corner of every paper that she handed me. And um, within, she, she said, pick one of these. So I picked the first one and I hand the rest of them back to her. She said, good. So I quickly chose the first one. I didn't want to have any longer conversation with her. Within a few days, I started corresponding with the adopted family through letters and through phone calls. And they seemed like a beautiful family. Nice, loving I mean, they had everything I didn't have. (laughs) They had a house. They had clothes. They had food. They had money. They had jobs. (laughs) They had adopted one boy, and they were wanting to adopt another child, boy or girl. So on October eighteenth, nineteen 1985, 30 years ago, I gave birth to a baby boy. A nurse came into my room and asked if I wanted to see him and immediately I said, no, I, I can't see him. I'm not supposed to see him. He's being adopted. So I just sat there. I was watching TV or looking at a book or something. I don't remember what I was doing. And she came back with the baby and laid him on my chest. And she asked me, why are you giving him up for adoption? I said, I'm only 12. And I don't have anything to offer him. She took my face in her hand. She said, yes, you do. She said, you're his mom. And I said, but I'm not supposed to have him in here. And then she left again. I have the baby on my chest. I was frightened. And I was frightened that somebody was going to come in and see him with me. I'm holding him. I was afraid. I kept looking around to see if somebody was going to come in, the adopted family or my, my family, my dad. I was afraid, but then I could feel him breathing. And I was afraid to look at him. He just was laying here on my chest. I looked down at his face, and I remember thinking he doesn't look like a monster. I remember how beautiful he was. I remember holding him and putting his face close to mine and just telling him (laughs) that I loved him. The nurse came back in, and she asked me what I was going to name him. And I'm like, lady, I'm not supposed to have him in this room with me. (laughs) So I said, I don't know. I'm not supposed to have him. And again, she leaves again. And I'm like, what in the heck am I? You know, I'm holding this baby. I'm trying to hide him with blankets. And I'm like, somebody's going to come in here and see me with this baby, and I'm going to get in big trouble. She comes back in, and she has a stack of magazines, teen magazines, right? She takes the baby. She hands the magazines to me, and and I have no idea what's going on, but suddenly she gives me the magazines, and she says, if you look through here, you'll find his name, and she takes the baby, and suddenly I'm looking through magazines for a baby name. I don't know what's going on, and I'm like, what am I doing? What is going on? And she's down, walking down the hall with the baby, and I'm sitting here with magazines. And it's 1985, and Prince is hot, okay? So I'm looking at Prince, Boy George, Michael Jackson, Billy Idol, Boy George, you know? And I'm like, well, I don't know. What should I name him? I'm naming a baby. So that's what 12-year-olds do to name babies. So I'm looking through this magazine, and I come across a centerfold of David Bowie. So I named him David. I refused to sign any more documents for adoption. I ended up keeping the baby. They brought his birth certificate to me and thankfully I named him David and not Prince or Michael Jackson <laughs> or Boy George. My son would kill me. So needless to say, my family and the adopted parents weren't very happy. Neither were the nuns, but that was okay. <laughs> I had no idea how I was going to take care of him, but I knew at that moment that I was supposed to keep him. For the next three years, David and I wandered from place to place. We lived with various family members, with friends and group homes and shelters. And on days when I didn't have a place to stay, we wandered through the parks and streets of San Francisco. Thoughts of my son having a better life with an adopted family tormented me every day. I started doubting that I made the right decision. Everyone was right. I didn't have anything to offer him. Walking through the streets of San Francisco, at that time, in Oakland in the 80s, and it's worse today, but there's gangs and there's pimps everywhere, there's dope dealers on every corner. I started selling weed to buy diapers and formula for David. Finally, When I turned 15, David was almost three. We were living in a group home in San Francisco together, and life was good. I was able to go back to school while David went to daycare. We had our own little room, a place to sleep. We had food to eat, and I couldn't ask for anything better. That was the best life I could ask for. Life was good. One day, I was called into the counselor's office. I thought I was in trouble because I had gotten in the fight earlier that morning. Uh, A girl had stolen my hairspray and I had knocked one of her teeth out. So I (laughs) thought I was getting kicked out. So that's what 15 year olds do. See how I was progressing. so, So I went to the counselor's office and she said, Michelle, it's time for you to go. And my heart just sank. I begged and pleaded to her. I said, please let us stay. Please let us stay. I have nowhere else to go. But she said these words, God has a plan for your life. And I was thinking in the back of my mind, this lady is always mean to me. But all of a sudden, she wants to say, God has a plan for your life. Okay. This place, she says, this place and these streets are not for you and David. She says, there's a woman I know that will take both of you, both you and David, to live with her. It's called a foster home. Will you go? And I thought, what is a foster home? Will I go? No, (laughs) okay. Before I could answer her, she says, pack your things you're leaving in the morning. And all I knew was those streets. All I knew were the people around me and the life that I was living in. That's all I knew. And although it was bad, it scared me that I was being forced to live and move to an unfamiliar place, but I had no choice. It's funny how you get comfortable in something or someplace, and it's awful, but you're willing to stay there because you don't know what that's all about if you go that way. (laughs) But I know this. this is hard, these are the streets, those are pimps, that's the drug dealer, you know, we, I could do this. But over there, I don't know what that is. And it's scary to me. Next thing I know, David and I are being transported in the car to a town called Roseville. Does anybody know where Roseville is? It's up in Northern California. Well, to me, I called it Hickville because I'm like, what is that, Roseville? <laughs> I was from Oakland, okay? There was a bunch of hillbillies that lived in Roseville. That's what I, that's, that's what my, my mind was thinking at 15. I was being transported to Roseville, a place I'd never been to, people I'd never met. And as we drove up to this house, there was an older lady standing outside, watering her plants. And my first thought was, Miss Cleaver from Leave it to Beaver. That's how my, I don't know, I didn't know what else to think, but that's what she looked like to me. But this is gonna be real bad, cause we probably won't mix. So (laughs) she doesn't know what's coming. So we got out of the car. And of course, Miss Cleaver was just smiling away, watering her plants, standing on her porch. And she came towards me. She reached out to hug me. And I was not having it. I didn't hug people. And I'm like, this lady is hugging me. And I don't know her. (laughs) Who is she? And the social worker says, well, she's a foster mom. What's a foster mom? What's a foster home? Hello, somebody tell me what's going on here. I don't know what's happening. So David and I just stood there. And the social worker talked to Ms. Cleaver. And we signed papers. And the lady showed us to our room. And I said, thank you. And I closed the door. Of course, David wanted to run and play. And I was like, you better stay right here in this room with me. I'm your mother. Okay? We don't know these people. It's so funny when I think about it today. (laughs) We're sitting there, I'm sitting on the bed, and I felt so uncomfortable in that place. So out of place. The room was so clean, smelled like flowers. It was just not right. (laughs) And something just, I just couldn't get used to this. Like the bed's made, the sheets are clean. It has a pillow. We have pillows. There's a closet, we have our own closet. And I just sat there and I was so uncomfortable. But if we left, where would we go? So it started to get dark and I laid there on the bed and David was falling asleep. And then there was a knock at the door and it was leave it to beaver lady. She came into the room and she whispered, if you get hungry dear, there's food in the refrigerator. I have to leave early in the morning for work but there will be somebody here to watch you. Okay, I'm not gonna steal any of your stuff, I promise lady. Go ahead, get somebody to watch me. I don't need nobody to watch me. I'm old enough (laughs) to take care of myself, but that's okay. You got somebody to watch me, that's fine. I'll watch her. Make sure she don't take my stuff. Because I got stuff. So, I thought, This is going to be interesting. So she has a babysitter waiting for me, and she's coming over in the morning. So I said, thank you. And then she says, as she's walking out the door, she says, I love you, Michelle. And I'm glad you're here. And then she left and closed the door. And I remember sitting at the edge of the bed just thinking, I don't remember the last time I heard those words. Like, I literally could not tell you, like, who said that in a loving way. Typically, when I heard those words, I love you, it was somebody hurting me. I remember I got so frustrated because I didn't know how to feel, like, how to react to that. How do you take that? She doesn't know me, and she's telling me she loves me, and I don't, it smells like flowers. I'm like, ugh, please, somebody get me out of here. I started crying, and I hadn't cried in a long time. I remember David looking at me like, what's going on? I mean, I was crying. he never seen me cry. I couldn't cry. My heart had become so hardened while out on the streets with David. I learned how to hustle, or you get hustled. I couldn't let people see how weak, how frightened, how vulnerable I was inside and I thought to myself, how can this lady say that she loves me? She just met me. She doesn't know who I am. She doesn't know where I'm from. Like, she doesn't, she doesn't know anything about me. They probably told her to say that. That's what I'm thinking. That's what it was. They probably told her. Tell her that you, yeah. So I stayed dressed and I sat on the bed. I left our two bags that had our stuff in there by the door left unpacked and ready to go in the morning. And I was determined to leave with David first thing in the morning. We woke up, I opened the door, and there's a note taped to the door. I'm like, okay. So I read the note and it said, I'll be home to make dinner. Make yourself at home, love, mom. So I'm like, oh my gosh, I sat back on the bed. I'm like, this lady <laughs> is so Crazy. Now she's like, love mom. I'm like, she is not my mom. Hello. And she, I mean, she was literally killing me with kindness because I was just like, I love you. Love mom. Oh my goodness. So we decided to stay another day. But that day turned into three years. (laughs) And God used that lady. Her name is Marilyn. Marilyn Bender. God used that lady to change the course of my life. To live in her home, I was required to go to church. So for months, I had her drop me off at the Catholic church because I was Catholic. I didn't know what that meant, but I was Catholic. I grew up Catholic and I needed to go to the Catholic church. So that's where she dropped me off every Sunday, but I was going to church and that's all that was required to live in her house was go to church. And I said, okay, well, I'm not going to your church, lady. So I'm going to my church. So she would drop me off at my church, Catholic church, and I'd go around back and I'd smoke until she come pick me up. And so that's what we did for Sunday after Sunday. So I'm just being honest. So so one Sunday I get up and I decide, you know what? I'm just going to go to church with this lady. Because she's so nice. And... I should probably be nice to her today. So I thought, okay, I'll go to church. That will make her happy, right? So one Sunday morning, I get up, and David's so happy. He we're going to church. I'm like, David, would you just be quiet, quiet? Don't get too happy. So with my hair, my hair spray, my hair sprayed eight inches high, and my hot pink shirt, looking like a hot mess my black skin tight pants I go to church with my mom my foster mom Marilyn now mind you I don't think anybody at her church was under the age of 80 well maybe it was 40 but when I was 15 everybody looked 80 to me okay so that's I'm being honest I walked in there, I said, all these old people, what is going on? I'm the only teenagers in this room. I really was, but I thought everybody was like 80 or 90, but I look back and I can count now. And they were probably like 35 to, you know, and up, but they looked old to me, right? So I I walk in, and you, you know when people are trying They're looking at you, but they're trying not to look at you, right? Do you ever have? Maybe some of you have never experienced that before, but some of you have. You know who I'm talking about, okay? You guys in the back row, okay? Those are the (laughs) people. So they're like, yes. Okay, so you know, everybody's looking at me, and I'm feeling like I don't fit into this church. This is really different for me. So I walk in, and I I don't I don't think I sat next to her. I didn't sit next to Marilyn, but she sat over there and I just kind of found a corner and I know everybody was staring at me. But then the pastor started talking and he started talking about Jesus and how Jesus could take the ashes of someone's life and turn it into something beautiful. Now, I sat there and I wondered how in the world was that possible? Because ashes are worthless ashes are not repairable ashes are left when something is destroyed and burnt right I mean that's what I'm thinking and I'm thinking he doesn't know what he's talking about these people are crazy all these old people are crazy I probably need a cigarette right about now so I'm gonna go but I didn't I sat there and I'm just listening and I'm going these people I'm like ashes beautiful no so I'm thinking of an ashtray, an ashtray full of cigarette butts. That's what I'm thinking of. And that's what my life felt like. That's what it looked like, like an ashtray, ready to be tossed away. How could Jesus make this life beautiful? Do you know where this life came from? Do you know what I've been through? Just in the last couple years, do you know? No, you don't know. So I don't... And I'm sitting here, I'm talking, I'm, this is all going inside my head. I wasn't talking out loud in that church with all those old people, because I'd probably scare somebody. So I was talking to him inside my mind while he was talking. We do that. All of us do that here on Sunday morning, right? So I wasn't crazy. So when the pastor stepped down from the podium and he asked if there was anybody, he said, anybody? Anybody in the room want to... Receive what Jesus has for you today. And I was thinking, you know you're talking to me. There ain't nobody else in this room who hasn't been here for 80 years. Okay, so let's everybody look at me right now. So so he says, anybody? Anybody would like to receive what Jesus has to offer? And sitting in the back, I knew he was talking to me. I mean, it was obvious he was talking to me, but I'm just saying, I knew in my heart he was talking to me. So I got up out of my seat. And I don't know if he said come forward, but I walked up the aisle. I was looking like a hot mess, just walking up the aisle with my hot pink shirt on. And I still remember to this day, it was hot pink with a big black Playboy bunny on the front. (laughs) It was awful. I mean, it's... I wish I had a videotape. God will probably have a videotape of that. I don't know. I just want to see it because it is funny. I'm walking up the aisle and I don't I wonder what he was thinking as I (laughs) walked. My pastor. I mean, he was probably 90 years old. I don't know. He was probably, he was probably 45, but he looked 90. I'm walking towards him. I walk up there. (laughs) I put my hands. He has his hands out, so I put my hands in his hands. And he started to pray, and I repeated what he said. He said, do you want to receive Jesus into your heart? I said, yes, I do. He says, do you want your life to change? I said, yes, I do. I need a new life. So he began to pray. I repeated after him, and I received Jesus into my heart that day. I was 16. I thought up to that point my life was unrepairable. But for the first time, I had hope. Not only for me, but for David and his future. And I felt, if a seed could feel, (laughs) but I felt like a seed planted in dirt for so long, just sitting there in the dark, waiting for somebody to come along and just water me. So I felt like this tiny seed getting ready to just sprout and blossom. And I could finally see just a little ray of light in my life. I went home that day. And I started reading through the Bible that he gave me from page one. Like, page one? Nobody told me, start from John, because then that talks about Jesus. and None of that. I didn't have anybody say it. Nobody told me what to do. I just was reading it like a book. Like, when you pick up a book, you don't start from page 243. You start from page one, right? So that's what I did. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And I was reading, and I'm like, this is crazy. This is how all this started? Like, why didn't somebody tell me this? (laughs) I mean, like, you would think that people would talk about this, like nobody told me. I'm reading this, and it was amazing to me. And then I started reading about this boy named Joseph. I'm talking about, this is day one. I could say, boom, the next day I start reading my Bible. I'm reading, I read about Joseph and his brothers hated him and they threw him in a pit and they wanted him to die and they sold him to these strangers. They made him a slave. They separated him from this family. But no matter where Joseph was, the Bible says that God was with Joseph. God blessed Joseph more than he could ever imagine, more than he ever expected. And I thought, if God, if this Bible is real, and if this is, this really happened, if God can bless Joseph like that, then why couldn't he do the same for me? Though people hurt Joseph, they hurt him badly. He chose to forgive. When people accused him, he didn't seek justice. He didn't seek revenge or to get back. He sought God. He did a lot of waiting and praying in dark places, in lonely places. And all the while, God was preparing Joseph, preparing him through his trials to do something greater with his life. Because God could seize Joseph's life from its beginning to its end. God had removed Joseph from his family taking him through some stuff in order to use Joseph to turn around and save his family and a bunch of other people. God, and I want you to hear this, and I don't know if anybody's taking notes, probably not, and it doesn't matter. <laughs> God is the master at hiding a blessing inside of an unexpected trial. He's a master at that. I'm going to say it again. God is the master at hiding a blessing inside of an unexpected trial. Through Joseph's story, I began to wonder if the events of my life had greater meaning, greater significance than I had realized up to that point. Maybe God had a purpose and plan for me as well. The evil that man had done in my life, perhaps God meant it for good. God used that little church of all those old people to change my life. <laughs> and again, when I say old, oh, they weren't old. I, I'm 43, I'm going to be 44 this year, so they're not old. <laughs> they were not old at all. <laughs> they took me under their wings, and they took the time to teach me everything I know today, how to read my Bible, how to study it, how to pray, how to spend time listening to God searching his word for answers and I had a lot of questions and that was 30 years ago most of them have gone home to be with the Lord but I'm so grateful for the love that they had for me this little girl from Oakland walking into their church and they changed my world when I was 19 God brought an amazing man into my life. His name was Keith Jr. We will be celebrating our 24th wedding anniversary this year. That seems so crazy. Thank you. He deserves all the praise because he's stayed with me for 24 years. My son David was almost seven when Keith and I got married. And he's 30 now, he just turned 30 in October. I have two grandbabies, baby boy and baby girl, and I'm so proud of him. I prayed for so many years, during my teen years, right after I got saved, I prayed that God would bless me with a husband that would love my son, that would love David as his own, and God went (laughs) far beyond and above my prayers. And any expectation that I could ever have for a husband, that's what he gave me in my husband. For years, my husband and I had tried to have a baby, and we couldn't. We struggled with infertility. We went to multiple doctors and underwent many tests and found that we were both perfectly fine, but we just weren't having kids. And then, and this is how it always happens, we got this unexpected phone call from a social worker, and I was told that my sister Melissa had a baby. Now, my sister Melissa, and Glenn, and my mom—I had lost contact them, contact with them for many years, and I did not know she was pregnant. Didn't know she had a baby. She had a baby boy that was taken from her and placed into foster care, and he needed a home. He was just born. He was just. Uh, And they were looking for a family member to take him. So my husband, it's a long story, but my husband and I prayed over the weekend, and um, we ended up taking him in. His name is Sean. He's 21 years old. And God gave us the baby his way. My sister, Melissa, during that time with Sean, became a meth addict. Sean was born addicted to methamphetamines. And um, he was stayed at the hospital for the first month of his life. I think my sister visited him once, and then we found out about him, when he was about two months, and then we went to visit him um, regularly. We lived in uh, Lancaster at the time, and he was born in Monterey, so we would make trips back and forth to visit him, and finally, when he was eight months old, we were able to bring him home and adopt him. But my sister was a at it, living on the streets, And after she had Sean, my sister went on to have seven more children. Over the past 21 years, my husband and I have picked up children from drug-infested hotels, from parks, from street corners, and brought them home to raise as our own. The last two children she left at the hospital shortly after she gave birth, she left them with notes with our names attached to them. And they found us. And I don't know why our name is not on the hospital wall because it should, like, just somebody just paint our name and number on the wall already, please, so we don't keep losing it. But the last two babies, the first one she left with a note, literally like an hour after she had Michael, she was gone. Her life is a mess, a mess. That was four years ago with Michael. And then she, uh, her last baby, Madison, is 11 months. And again with her, left her at the hospital with a note saying, please give my baby to my sister. And I was thinking yesterday, the day that I found out about Madison was the morning of another retreat I was speaking at (laughs) that last year. And that morning, I went and saw Madison and drove, and I went and spoke at the retreat, and I spoke Friday, Saturday, and then Sunday morning, um, the ladies, I had shared with the ladies some more about um, the, the kids and the baby and all that was going on in our lives and how I didn't have Anything. I was taking Madison home Monday morning, literally driving home from the retreat, picking up the baby and bringing the baby home. And my other kids had no idea I was bringing a baby home. So they, and this is what's crazy too, the last one, Michael, I brought him home basically, not from a retreat, but from a, a, it was like a mother and daughter luncheon. So my kids think when I go to speak somewhere, that I'm going to bring a baby home. So that's not happening today. So. Anyhow, but the ladies at the retreat, (laughs) I spoke Sunday morning and as I'm getting ready to go, I walk in for the last session and the retreat room was turned into a baby shower. And I was so blessed. And I thought, that is amazing. That never who does that? Who goes to retreat and has a retreat and then comes and it turns into a baby shower? That's a celebration. That's so cool. (laughs) So we have we have including my son David, we have nine children. Okay, seven of them are just a couple of miles away right now at the, at the beach house and I, that's where I left them with my husband and my mom, they're there with my mom and my husband and I don't have this in my notes because I have so much to write and I didn't want to just keep talking and talking because I could do that but my mom and I, God restored the relationship with my mom like just it's that, that's, that's a whole retreat in itself mother and daughter relationships, but what we went through and the pain, it was awful. But God restored it. Shortly after I became a Christian, the Lord allowed me to share Christ with her and she came to know the Lord. So she's been walking with the Lord for a while too. And some of these ladies here know her. She's a blessing in my life. And she's the best grandma. Not a better grandma than me, but she's a be- she's one of the best grandmas ever. God restored our relationship. So we have nine kids total. Each time uh, we receive a call, we pray and we ask the Lord, what would you have us do, God? And each time it's the same answer. Although we can't control my sister's actions, these kids weren't asked to be born addicted to drugs. They weren't born, they weren't asked to be left in hotel rooms to fend for themselves. And Christ always says the same thing. Whatever you do, For the least of my brethren, you've done unto me. So I don't care how tired you are, Michelle, (laughs) because that's my answer sometimes. God, I'm tired. I'm 43. I know some of you are like, 43, come on already. I wish I was 43. (laughs) Okay, but (laughs) some days when you're waking up five times a night, it gets hard (laughs) at 43. I'm like, Lord, I'm tired. But God's like, no. This is what I've called you to do, and I'm going to give you the strength to do it. God answered our prayer for children His way, in an unexpected way. <laughs> for years, when we were trying to have kids, month after month, we would take the pregnancy test and we would pray. And my husband and I'd sit there holding hands in the bathroom and we'd just pray, God, if it's your will, please, please let me get pregnant, Lord. And month after month, it was always no. And then right around the fifth or sixth child, month after month, we were praying, God, please do not let me get pregnant right now because this would not be funny, really. I don't need any surprises, okay? I know you're the God of surprises, but this is not funny, and this would not be funny right now. So, again, I'll be 44 this year. <laughs> and as I look back on all of the unexpected moments of my life and the turn of, of events in my life, Some I understand, many I don't understand, but I know this, that God has promised that he will make all things beautiful in its time. Let's pray. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. I am weak, Lord, you're so strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Oh, yes, 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 he loves me.
1: Yes,
0: Jesus loves me. For the Bible tells me so. Father, we thank you. And Lord, we know that in your word you tell us over and over again through examples of people that have gone before us, Lord. How much you love us and you show us today in our very lives, God. How much you love and care for us, Lord. Father, when things come into our lives that are unexpected, I ask God, I pray for myself, Lord, and I pray for my sisters tonight that you would help us to recognize that You are a God that is faithful. That you don't let anything happen for no reason. Every single thing that we go through in our life, there's purpose behind it. You see our lives in totality. We may not understand it. We may not like it. But Father, you love us more than anybody. I look back on my life, Lord, and I'm so grateful. I wouldn't want to go through those things again. Absolutely not. But, Father, thank you. (laughs) Because if I hadn't gone through those things, I don't think I'd be able to do what I'm doing today. So I pray for my sisters, and I pray for us all tonight, Lord, whatever my sisters are going through. Help her to keep pressing on, Lord help her father when she's going down that road that's just lonely and she doesn't know where it's headed help her father to trust you you know where she's going she is hand in hand with you and there's no better place to be but with you God Jesus we thank you thank you for loving us like you do and we ask these things in Jesus name thank you for listening today. And I pray that your heart was encouraged, refreshed, and challenged to live the life that God has called you to live, no matter what that looks like, because life is always somewhere between joy and pain, laughter and tears. So until next time, may God bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you.